This Memorial Day weekend, our sermon text will be Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, just those two verses. I wanted to look at those, though, because Memorial Day is a time to remember. And when I talk about remembering as Christians, I'm not just talking about uh, a pining away about those golden days of yesteryear. There's a place for that. I'm as sentimental as the next guy, and I like thinking about past days in that way. But for Christians, thinking back and remembering past times is not just a matter of nostalgia. For us, memory must motivate us to action. It serves that function. Hebrew seems to be written to a church that needs some motivation. It seems that the audience that Hebrews is written to is merely playing out the string. There are those there who have known the gospel, yet have not grown in the gospel. Perhaps there are others there who have served the church, but now feel that their time is past. They're no longer running the race. They're merely coasting toward the finish line. This is God's word for them and for us. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that you would, during this morning, speak to us through the preaching of your word, not because of the preacher, but because it is your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The shark-infested waters were chillingly cold. Florence Chadwick's muscles ached as she fought toward her goal. Two years earlier, she had swum across the English Channel, marking the fastest time it had ever been done by a woman in 13 hours and 20 minutes. But this day would be less glorious. She was attempting to become the first woman to swim the 26 miles from Catalina Island to the California coast. There were small boats around her, keeping an eye out for sharks. They're ready to help her if she ran out of strength. About 15 hours into her swim, a dense fog began to roll in. Her vision was cut off except to the nearest of the boats around her. Unable to see her ultimate goal, her confidence 
began to wane. She said to her mother, who was in one of the boats nearby her, I don't think I can make it. Her mother encouraged her to keep going. But after another hour of swimming, unable to see her ultimate destination, she gave up. They pulled her out of the water and sailed in toward the shore. During that sail into the shore, she came to realize that at the point at which she had given up, she was less than a mile from her ultimate destination. She told reporters afterwards, look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I know I could have made it. The fog had made her unable to see her goal and without the ability to fix her eyes on that goal, she could not endure. The Christian life is much like this swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. We face all sorts of difficulties and trials. We face all sorts of opposition that would seek to ensnare us. Many temptations face us not to endure, not to persevere, not to finish the race that has been set before us. Hebrews 12, though, gives us motivation to finish, and not just to finish, but to finish strong. We are reminded in this passage that the key is remembering. We need to remember those who have gone before us in the faith. We need to remember the Lord who has authored and perfected our faith. And we need to remember the cross that has validated our faith. First of all, those who have gone before us in the faith. We see in verse 1, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now this word witnesses can have a couple different meanings, both in the English and in the Greek in which this was written. One term for witnesses can be the idea of spectators. We would use it that way sometimes. If you are at an athletic contest and you are a spectator, you might be said to have been a witness to what went on there. Uh, That is a perfectly logical way to use it, and it is perfectly appropriate to understand it in this sense that when it is talking about witnesses, it is talking about those who are observing. But I believe, and I feel very strongly that it is right, that, that it is more than just this which is being said here. I think what is being said is, is in addition to that, the second sense of the word, the sense in which we have it also in English. A witness is not just someone who observes something, but someone who makes testimony to what they have observed. We use this terminology in a legal setting. If somebody is called to be a witness in a court of law, they are not just somebody who is observing the court of law, but rather they are bearing witness. They are giving testimony to what they have seen, to what they have experienced. And I think that's what's going on here. I think that for a number of reasons. First of all, because in the Bible, when this word is used, it is most commonly used of this sense. We actually get our word martyr from the Greek word uh, that is used here, translated witness. A martyr, of course, is somebody not just who has seen something, but someone who, by giving up their life, is bearing witness, giving testimony to what they have seen 
and experienced. The second reason I think that this is the correct interpretation of what is meant by a witness in this specific passage is this little word at the beginning of verse 1, therefore. I think I've told you before that whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ought to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? And as we look at that here, we see that as it usually is, it refers to what immediately preceded. And what immediately preceded chapter 12 is chapter 11, of course. Chapter 11 is a fairly famous passage of scripture which recounts the lives of numerous saints who had gone before, who had served the Lord, who had succeeded and failed, but who by the Lord's grace had ultimately endured. And this hall of fame of faith is the group of witnesses that I believe we are talking about here. Finally, at the end of chapter 11, in verse 39, it speaks of these people and says, having obtained a good testimony. That testimony, of course, is the testimony of God's faithfulness to them. This is the same word in the Greek that's used here now in chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 12. So there's definitely a connection that runs from the end of chapter 11 to the beginning of chapter 12, tying the two together. And that is why I think, with all those reasons, that this great cloud of witnesses to which the author refers is those people mentioned in chapter 11, the saints who have gone before, who have experienced God's grace and faithfulness, and who proclaim testimony of that grace and faithfulness to us even now through the word of God. This group of witnesses is referred to here as a cloud, and that's kind of a a strange phrase it seems to us perhaps. We don't normally talk about people as being a cloud, but it wasn't a completely foreign term to people in ancient literature. It's used uh, in the same sense by Homer in the Iliad and It is conveying the idea of a density, much as a a cloud is a a compilation of density of water particles in the air. So, So here this idea is a density of people. There is not just one or two people who are bearing witness, but a group of people, a large group of people bearing witness. And all the commentators I saw agree that this is the idea. Now, I tend to think that there might be a little bit more beyond beyond that. I give you fair warning here. I could not find anybody else who said this, but I think that there might be a little bit more to it. Consider this thought. In the Bible, most commonly, when clouds are mentioned or a cloud is referred to, what is being talked about is not Uh, meteorological presence of something in the sky but rather what is most commonly being referred to when clouds are mentioned in the Bible is the glory of God consider when Moses and the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai a cloud descends on the mountain representing the glory of God as they wander through the wilderness they are guided by day, by a pillar of cloud representing the glory of God. As the tabernacle is set up, a cloud descends upon it and enters into it representing the glory of God. 
as Peter, James, and John ascend the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They see a cloud descend upon the mountain, representing the glory of God. And when Jesus ascends, we are told he is taken up by a cloud. And we are told that when he returns, he will return in the clouds. I think these last two are also speaking of the glory of God. And so in this passage, I think that it is quite possible that what is happening is not just a common phrase referring to a group of people, but it is a phrase referring to a group of people who are by their testimony reflecting the very glory of God. And so too, as we bear witness to what God has done in our lives, we too reflect the glory of God. The purpose of remembering these witnesses, verse 1 goes on to tell us, is to encourage us to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Paul uses this same kind of language elsewhere when he says that we should rid ourselves of anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language. And certainly the idea is here that we ought to rid ourselves of various sins. But I don't think that's the whole idea here. It's not just ridding ourselves of various sins. The idea is that even if we were to rid ourselves of this sin and that sin, we would still remain sinful. Because we see that we are born sinners. As David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're not sinners because we sin. Rather, the opposite is true. We sin because we are born sinners. And if this is the case, this casting aside of sin is not something that we can do. It is something we must do, but it's not something that we can do alone. It is something that ultimately only Christ Jesus can do in and through us. And so we need to depend on Christ for that. Apart from this, though, setting aside our sin is not enough. We notice the author of the letter to the Hebrews says here also that we should set aside every weight. The idea is that there are weights and there are sins. Sins are things that are wrong for you to do. You should not do them ever. End of story. There are other things that might be called weights. Other things that weigh you down, that keep you from being able to run the race. There's not necessarily anything wrong about them in and of themselves. But in your specific situation, where you specifically are right now, they might keep you from being able to run as well as you can. That's why you look at a runner. Runners don't get out and run in a trench coat and blue jeans. No, they get down to the bare minimum. Tiny shorts, shoes that weigh less than a pound with the shoes and the pants and the shirt. Every day they strip away everything that might hinder their running. There's nothing wrong with blue jeans and trench coats, but they don't help you run. And so we ought to ask, not 
What am I allowed to do? We ought not tiptoe up to the edge of what is morally acceptable and then lean over and say, I'm all right as long as I don't cross this line. Rather, our attitude ought to be to ask the question, what helps me run the race? What helps me love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? What helps me love my neighbor as myself? What helps me glorify Jesus Christ? And then we ought to do those things. This applies in all kinds of areas of life. It might be with the TV shows you watch and the music you listen to. Does it help me run the race? It could be with the friends that you have and the associations you belong to. Do they help me run the race? It might be with something big like where you live or the job you have. Do they help me run the race? We need to ask if they help me run the race because the race will be hard. It will be difficult. There is no promise in scripture that life will be easy for Christians. In fact, the exact opposite is promised to us. We see even in this word race, the Greek word there is agona. We get our word from it, agony. It will not be easy. The quote, famous quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is called to mind. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This truth must not scare us off, though. The Puritan John Owen speaks eloquently as to how this great cloud of witnesses helps us to this end. He says, Those that testify these things are important witnesses in this cause. For when upon the approaches of danger and trouble, it may be death itself, we are brought to contest things in our own minds and to dispute what is best for us to do, wherein Satan will not be lacking to increase our fears and our disorders by his fiery darts. It cannot but be an advantage and encouragement to have all these holy and blessed persons stand about us, testifying unto the folly of our fears, the falseness of all the suggestions of unbelief, and the fraud of Satan's temptations, as also unto the excellency of the duties whereunto we are called, and the certainty of our success in them through believing. So instead of failing in fear, we must run the race set before us. Not some other race, not a race that we'd rather run, but the race set before us. A course has been set by God, and we must run that race. The first way we do this is by remembering that testimony of those who have gone before us in the faith. The second way we do this is by remembering the example of our Lord, the author and finisher of our faith. The author and finisher of our, of our faith. That's a loaded, loaded statement. Both things are true, author and finisher, not just in a general sense, but also in a specific sense. Let's unpack that real quickly. Jesus is the author of our faith in that he is the founder 
of the faith. He is the originator of the faith. It all emanates from him. He is the source of it. Of course, it is faith in him. So he is the author of the faith. But beyond that, he is the author of my faith. He is the one who has created faith and put it in my heart. He is the one who has caused me to believe and who has caused you to believe. He is the author not only of the faith, but he has dictated our specific faith. And he is also the finisher of the faith. Some translations say the perfecter of the faith in that he perfected the faith. He became a man and lived out a perfect faith, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet tempted without sin. And we are saved in a very real sense, ultimately because of his perfect faith. But he also, in addition to being the perfecter of the faith, he brings my faith to completion, to perfection, to maturity. Philippians 1, we read in verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, he is the author and finisher, both of the faith in general and of your faith in particular. It's a loaded statement. We find the same idea actually in the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. is the author and the finisher. He is everything. And we are to look unto this Jesus who is everything. Literally the, the words here say we are to look away to Jesus. The idea is that there are many places our eyes might be. They might be on difficulties we are having with our health or the loss of a loved one. They might be on job problems we have. They might be on the financial woes we're experiencing. They might be on struggles within your marriage or struggles with not being married or struggles in some other relationship. All sorts of things are out there that we tend to focus on. But what God's word says to us here is look away. Look away from those things and look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Don't be distracted. Fix your eyes on him. Fix your eyes on him and pattern your life after him. For he is our perfect example. But he's not just a moral example. That's what differentiates Christianity from every other religion in the world. He is not just an example. We are to remember the testimony of those who have gone before us in the faith. We are to remember the example of the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. But most of all, we are to remember the cross that validates our faith. And when I say the cross, I mean that is sort of a shorthand for the death and resurrection and ultimately the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
If Jesus is only our example, we have a big problem. The Apostle Paul is the first to admit this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied, he says. You see, Christian faith is not about Jesus as example. It is about Jesus as Savior. Jesus died a substitutionary death on our behalf. He died the death that we should have died to pay for our sins. And he did this, we are told in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him. Now, the way this seems to us when we first look at it, he did it for the joy set before him. It seems that saying that that was the purpose he did for which he did it. The reason he did it was for the joy. Again, I'm going to take a minority viewpoint in this. This one I feel a little bit better about because John Calvin held to this viewpoint too and he was a pretty smart guy. So I'll stay with John Calvin. But he says, and I say with him, that this word for, this word translated for as for here, actually almost everywhere else in scripture and most commonly everywhere else in literature does not mean for as in the purpose of, but it means for as in instead of. Like we did this for something else means instead of that in exchange for it is kind of the idea. And if we understand it to mean instead of, it radically changes the meaning of this passage. It says instead of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think that's what is getting at here is that, that he had set before him pure joy, unhindered relationship with the Father from all eternity to all eternity. And instead of that joy, which was set before him, he chose instead to run the race set before us. He chose instead to endure the cross. And in his running our race for us, his agony in that race took the place of our agony. And the thrill of his victory becomes ours. And so we have a love that builds up in our heart as a result of what he has already done for us that in turn motivates our service for him. The key idea here is endurance. Let us run with endurance for Christ endured the cross. You see, our goal is not just salvation. Our goal is Jesus. We don't just long to be in heaven. We long to be with Jesus. He is our goal. Two months later, 
Florence Chadwick tried again. Once more, the thick fog rolled in. But this time she kept a mental image in her mind of the sight of the coastline that she knew was there. In so doing, she endured. And she became the first woman to make that swim and actually completed the swim in two hours less than any person, male or female, had ever done it. What was the big difference this time? The difference was this. This time, she knew she could do it, and she kept her mind focused on the goal. As Christians, we will face difficulties. The race will be hard. But the saints have gone before us, and they testify that by the grace of God, we can make it. So let us not focus on our difficulties but on Christ Jesus and his work. And in so focusing, let us endure. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have indeed shown us grace and that you are faithful. And we pray that you would preserve us, that we might endure to your glory. We ask